Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. If you listen carefully, you'll be able to hear the delicate sound of thunder during today's Undermine. We'll get to that. But first things second, welcome back to Undermine. This is the second part of the second part of our fourth season. As you'll remember, Undermine season four was all about fish in 1997. We highlighted the best shows of that landmark year in fish history until we dove deep and featured every single show in the band's incredible fall 97 tour. Then the season ended. But we recently just came back to see how 1997 really ended by looking at the four shows of that amazing New Year's run. So what's left for us to analyze in 1997? Nothing. So why is our season not over? Why are we diving into four shows from early 1998? Hopefully my co-hosts know the answer to that. I'm your host, Tom Marshall, and I'm joined today by both my wingmen, RJB and Benji Eisen. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. Hello, guys and gals. Ah, uh, wait. So you're not going to explain it? I see what's happening here. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll I'll explain it. In some ways, you could say that our entire sprawling season has led up to this moment, uh, because it's the moment some of you have been asking for, and we are going island hopping over the next four nights. Because yes, we're on island tour, and even though we actually blew past the island tour's 25th anniversary by more than a month now, it's fine because we're on island time. The tour itself, which took place between April 2nd and April 5th, 1998, was always a phenomenon suspended in time or on borrowed time or something like that. Just a month prior, it wasn't even going to happen. Coming off a phenomenal 1997, as we documented in Undermine Season 4 last year, the band was in play mode. They performed four of their best consecutive shows during the New Year's run, including the first time playing MSG for three nights and their second New Year's Eve in the building to close out that banner year. So going into 1998, the band had studio time planned, but you know, Fish is a live band, playing live is their oxygen, and it's where the community lives too. So in a way, it's the scene's oxygen as well, reminding us all to breathe, 
Ah, and me too. Uh, Fish scheduled the island tour as a quick strike, making fast time by announcing four shows, two in Long Island and two in Rhode Island, just two weeks before they were going to take place. And the shows sold out instantly, of course, and everyone started packing for the islands. RJ, any guess on who named it Island Tour? No. It's our good friend, Brad Sands. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, buckle up. It's a road trip. Benji, where's our first stop? Well, Tom, you know, I suspiciously knew that you, you were going to ask me that. So I took out MapQuest like we would have done in 1998. And I put a <laughs> pin in Uniondale, New York. Well, I, it, Hempstead, really. I, I don't know. It gets a little confusing. It's Hempstead, but it's in Uniondale. Well, the first stop on our two-stop four-night island tour is the Nassau Coliseum. It's appropriately home of the Islanders. Uh, or, or it was, and, and it kind of is again. Uh, that's not even the confusing part. But uh, apart from hockey, basketball, wrestling, uh, <laughs> and other sports, the building has a little bit of history with rock and roll. You know, as, as fish fans might be used to by now, when you go into an arena, if you look up at the rafters and you see a jersey that says Billy Joel, well, it's, it's honorary. Uh, the Dead also have a banner up there to celebrate their record for the most amount of plays by one band, which is a number that I really love, uh, 42. There are 42 proper Grateful Dead shows at the Coliseum, more, more with uh, other projects as well. Led Zeppelin, Elvis Presley was in the building, Metallica, and others with names that are just as big, and they all have their own uh, line and ink in the arena's little history log or guest book with live recordings, historic nights, iconic photographs, uh, and there's others that are tied to their particular Nassau nights. So the venue itself, let's see, it's, it's a 15,000-capacity classic 70s era hockey arena, the kind we love to see fishing. Um, it was the final stop for Frank Zappa in 1998. Uh, his last show ever is Bruce Springsteen's legendary, uh, it was the home of Bruce Springsteen's legendary uh, three show run in December 1980 that was wow. captured and it was released in various forms of the years, including this box set that I love from, from him uh, that you might have and, and some other releases as well. Um, and then, Tom, as you alluded to at the very top of the program, Pink Floyd, uh, their album Delicate Sound of Thunder was recorded live in the building. And so that's why you hear the echoes of the, of the, the Delicate Sound of Thunder. Um, and then, of course, you know, considering that we are still talking about the two fish shows that we're about to talk about, it, it does look like some of the, the building's magic wore off on, on our guys from Vermont. Yeah, it's interesting because are they really from Vermont? Because Trey is from New Jersey. <laughs> And, you know, so no, he knows this area. He knows, he probably saw all those bands that you mentioned, possibly at Nassau Coliseum. Tom, did you see any shows at Nassau Coliseum? I mean, oh, before Trey, this? Not really. Trey was so much more adventurous than I was in terms of travel, like to New York City and stuff. He took me to like my first MSG show, took me to the dead there and stuff. Um, we, uh, any, anytime I was in New York City, I was with Trey and Peter Catoni. Um, but uh, even like that little tiny, river that separates manhattan from brooklyn was enough for me not to go any further uh eastward and so brooklyn was far away and then uh beyond brooklyn was like the end of the world <laughs> so before fish I, I didn't really venture out there no oh that's fantastic all right so <laughs> i think we're gonna actually and it's still actually just so everybody knows no offense to people who live in brooklyn it's still hard to get time to go to brooklyn um okay guys 
We're talking about 4298, but first let's talk about 97. Um, so they wrapped up 97 at the show that we talked about at Madison Square Garden. And Trey at the at some point in the shows, I think it was in the first night at some point, he said they were just bored and didn't have anything to do and wanted to play more music. So Tom, do you think, or Benji, do you guys think like, what, why do you think they decided to do this? It was so fast. And, you know, I don't know if it's like his, his example or his explanation of they were just bored and wanted to play seems like that's what it was. But do you think there was more to it? There's to, to me, there's like a tiny element of the young kids at home. And like, uh, you know, imagine like, you're, you're fish and you're playing to screaming fans and your band is on and you know that they're on. And then you go home and you have this whole other world as Carlos Santana told Trey, you got to go home and empty the garbage and, you know, come down from your throne because on, on the road, you're the king. But I, I think it was part of that. Like he wanted to get back to that. I mean, right then I, I was a dad of two kids ages one and four. And I was like, I was, I, I realized that and I was a programmer for the cable television industry, <laughs> uh, like A&E, Lifetime and Comedy Central were my clients. Um, and I was starting to see that fish was more fun than computers. <laughs> and so I like created my own band, um, Amphibian, and I had a young Scott Metzger um, as my guitarist. And uh, it was an incredible time. But uh, back to fish, I was on the bus whenever I could jump on board. Um, and I actually rode with them. Uh, from Long Island to, to Providence on this very tour, for example. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, you know, well, first of all, RJ, I think that in my mind at the time when they did the island tour, I, I, I took Trey's word almost as gospel when he said, you know, this album's from our net or this album's from our last week's concert. And, and I thought, well, it's cool. Like it gives them a chance to fine tune, you know, stuff for, for going into the studio, but that's not really the case. They played mostly the stuff that they'd been playing for years apart. I mean, they debuted birds of, of, of a feather, Frankie says, but, but it wasn't like they, it wasn't like their wingsuit at Atlanta city where they're actually road testing, new materials. I think that they just wanted to play. I mean, you know, 97, they just wanted to play and they were, they were so hot, you know, and, and you could just see it when they were on stage every second, they were having as much fun as we were. And I mean, uh, ostensibly they still are, but it, it was just this moment in time when they were, they were riding a, a wave. And I feel like, you know, New Year's Eve kind of, that's when the wave, whatever that the, the previous year was, that's where it comes to a close. And I kind of felt like they didn't want, they wanted a little, you know, a, a little bonus, a lanyap, I, I believe it's called. Um, but anyway, guys, you know, we are rapidly approaching sacred ground with these shows because the island tour is like, I, I, I try not to use religious, you know, terminology too much with fish, but it, the island tour really is like scripture for, for many fish fans. So, you know, this is our chance to dive in and maybe look at why, if not how. You know, we know when, 
we know where. So, so now let's talk about what. Um, and of course, let's start with April 2nd, because it would be weird if we started with one of the following nights. So um, this show kicks off with Tube, and which in my mind is exactly what I was talking about. It's the continue, Tube was one of the signature calling cards of 97. When we think about 97, I think a lot of us think about that, you know, think about the, the dating Tube uh, and just Tube overall. It, it, it's a spiritual companion to 97. So I think starting it off like that really had that statement. Then my mind's got a mind of its own, the sloth, and I see you. I think these all would have hit a certain way in 1998. In fact, I know it because we were all in the building. Um, they weren't standards at the time, and, and all three would have stoked some excitement, but you know, but they're standard, but they're they're songs, they're not jams. So I think the first thing that we can really talk about with any meat is probably that stash. Yeah, I mean, I, I I neglected to mention that I I was at these shows, and I think Tom, you said you were, and Benji, you were also. Yep. That was it. Was so great. I was like in a similar place to fish with very important differences in that I was a <laughs> freshman in college, but we didn't have anything better to do either. So we just like got into a couple of cars and just left. And I don't remember how we even got tickets or you know, like we just left and we suddenly we were there and we were on Long Island and. We got to the venue and my friend Chris had a dat deck and he was taping and I think his tape circulated. But if you ever had a tape of this show where when they started tube, it was like way, way too high and peaked right at the beginning and then turned back down. That was from my friend Chris. But because um, he had no idea what he was doing, he just bought a dat deck and was like, this is going to be great. Um, but yeah, this stash is like when we all realized like this is why we're here. They just picked up the improvisational thread from the end of 97 and it gets like straight into this tension and then it gets ambient and it's just a really fun musical adventure. I, I think first set stashes, even now, like it's just a sign of, you know, being ready to to push it out there and see what happens. Um, and it just kind of melts into horn, which is, is really cool. It's I'm sure for you guys and many listeners, like this is a, I know every note of this run, you know, you just like, it's like burned into my memory. It does melt into horn, and I love that because I, I love horn as a song, uh, it, it, and my love for it has not waned at all over the years. Um, and as for a stash, well, I agree with you 100%, RJ. Um, stash is one of the, the three invincibles, you know, um, that it has it has this great, reliable, and yet unique jam seemingly every time, so it never really fails. Wolfman's Brother and Bathtub Gin are the other two, by the way. Um, and then I've never heard also, that, but I agree. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I just made it up. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, three invincibles because every single time any of them appear, you know, if you see stash on a set list, there's never really a bad stash, you know, and it's always like it's it's always the unsung, you know, like it, there's always an unsung jam in, in that or in Wolfman's brother, or bathtub gin. Sometimes they're they're heralded, but a lot of times they're just you know in the first set and are overshadowed by some twenty minute leviathan in the second. But they're always reliably improvisational in nature, and they always work. You know, so anyway, I don't have I don't have any rules like that. Except my rule is, if any set opens with punch, then it's going to be a great set. If it's the first set, then it's going to be a great show. If it's the second set, like this this night, then it's going to be a, a great you know second set encore. May your rule always prove tr- true, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and may I remember it the next time they open with punch. Um, but you know, there was this opening night excitement at Nassau Coliseum that night. I, I remember being in that parking lot and I just remember, you know, look, often opening nights have, you know, a certain amount of anticipation, uh, and then release built into them because, you know, everyone's looking forward to the night for so long. They're counting down the days, you know, uh, until tour starts, they're planning with their friends and we have, you know, a few months to sit and daydream at work about, or in college at the time, you know, about, about what it's going to be like and, and whatever. And there was an abundant, abundant amount of anticipation and release inside the Nassau Coliseum, but it was a little bit different because there was this added excitement of, holy shit, like we're here. You know, Fish announces these four shows and it's like, holy shit, we made it. Like it, it was like, what, like two weeks time between when they announced, I, in my mind, it was like a day. You know, in my mind, it was like they announced it and suddenly I'm in my friend's car driving up, you know, to... To uh to Long Island, I think that there's about two weeks, but you know we got tickets and and sudden suddenly there I was in the parking lot. I bumped into you, Tom, in the parking lot. I literally bumped into you in the parking lot going into the building. So you know the excitement was just you know building and building. I have a lot of memories of Island Tour, and I think I consciously made a decision. I definitely overpartied uh, for the New Year's run '97, like to the point where I was like telling myself. I'm an awful person. You know what I mean? Every single morning. And uh, I wasn't really partying hard. And I remember consequently kind of everything about the Island tour. And I uh, sort of made a, a realization like, Hey, you don't have to be completely obliterated to, to enjoy yourself. Um, <laughs> and so I absolutely enjoyed and I, I sensed it. I remember seeing you, Benji, everything. Um, but it gets us exactly where we need to be at this moment. Uh, all your guys' beautiful introduction, which is to say it's time for a word from our sponsors. And they're your sponsors too, if you're listening to Undermine for free. And if you're watching us on YouTube instead, you'll see that today's Undermine is also brought to you by three white men with microphones. (laughs) Okay, we will be right back. (laughs) And just like I said, we would be, we are back. Let's get to set two of the Island Tour opener. Benji, do you like this set? Of course I do. Um, the uh, Well, let's start with, there's the the Wolfman's Into Sneaking Sally. Hold is, on. Punch, come on. Uh, yeah, so yeah, punch. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that now goes without saying. It's, you it's forgot Tom's, it already. You it's forgot Tom's, Tom's rule, rule already. The only rule from Tom, it, it doesn't even need to begin. It's just punch. Okay, okay. Um, but okay, the Wolfman's Into Sneaking Sally, it, it's simply 
one of the best segues that Fish has perhaps ever done, certainly at the time. And there's something about it that was very much on par with the David Bowie and the Possum that was literally just several shows earlier at MSG on December 29th, 97, of course. So, and you know, and that segue that happens in the middle of this seamless and stopless segment of music that was designed to make the entire arena dance, you know, on the 97 theme that we, we were talking about. And, and it was very successful, you know, and that also there just the, the selection of Sneaking Sally that night kind of felt like a callback to the previous run at MSG. So there's the, this connective tissue between the, the segue and, and the callback. You know, listening back now, this set too, it's, it's not my favorite set of the run, but the quality is so high that on many other runs in the years leading up to it, it, it could have easily been my favorite set of, the, of that run. You know, because it's just, it's a flawless and uh, set. It's, it's constant. And, you know, for years on Fish Tour, this is, this is absolutely true that, that I was thinking about it the other day. For years on Fish Tour, I had friends that referred to this set simply as 422 and like giving it this mythical status, you know, like it was a holy thing, 422. Um, and I think those are people, uh, the, the, now that I think about it, the people that referred to it as 422 were all fans that became fans in 97. Um, and so this is just sort of like their validation, I guess. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it has a holy spirit to it. Uh, RJ, do you think that it deserves that type of reputation? Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I think this, as I was going through all five, four of these shows, I was at five. I wish there were five. As I went through all four of these shows, there are some. RJ has access to the secret, the secret set. <laughs> that was four, six, man. That was fun. Um, I think it's, it's, first of all, all four nights are like perfect, you know, so it's, it's hard. Then you, then you start to get into the like nitty gritty of it. There's a, there's a set that we'll talk about in a couple of days that I think is like severely underrated, but I think the show is, is rated lower than, than this show, but it's all like really, you know, splitting hairs at this point, because they're all so good. And um, you mentioned this, this Wolfman's and a sneak and Sally. I mean, the debut of birds of a feather, which, which, you know, comes back a couple of days later. Um, I, I think this, like with that debut, actually, if you're really getting to into splitting hairs, I think like the simple being sort of like a transition and birds of a feather being kind of a short debut. I think that takes this show down like just a notch from, from four, three and four, four. But I do think that it's basically perfect. So I don't know, I guess I'm arguing both sides, but these, these transitions, especially the Wolfman sneak and Sally, like you said, the debut of Frankie says 
which is weird and creepy and fun, you know, just going straight into twists, which, you know, this kind of centerpiece of the tour of the, not of the tour, sorry, of the night. I mean, it's just, man, listening to this is so, it's just so satisfying because it's just, it delivers every time. Um, but this, this twist is, it's Mike is really driving it. I think on, on re-listen for the, you know, 200th time, but in, in this whole run, they're not in a hurry at all. And it's just so fun to hear. And I think you hear that at like festivals, right? Like Clifford ball and great when, and then Trey said from, was that from the, the stage at Clifford ball? when he said like, we don't have anywhere to go for a few days, so we'll just keep playing. Like, I feel like <laughs> this, this little run had that similar feel like they didn't have anywhere to go. They weren't in a hurry. And I think that re- got reflected in the music. Like this twist has so many twists and turns, but none of them are like, um, frenetic or you know it's just sort of like a it's patient and i think it's so fun to listen back to energy was palpable and i think this is one of those nights where the band was feeding you know providing as much energy to the crowd as the crowd is providing to the band it's one of those perfect equilibrium nights and beginnings of a tour it was incredible i don't know who was more excited the band or the or the crowd and that's the exactly the way you want it and the music was just so good stunningly good but i just wanted to say rj you reminded me just now um Trey, uh, and I think it might be from the Woodstock movie, uh, but he had a lot of like uh, Hendrix stuff. So it might not have been Hendrix, but it was um, I think it might have been Woodstock because it was like rainy. And he was like saying, we're just uh, Hendrix says, we're just going to jam here. So if you guys want to go home, you can or something. If you want to leave, you can. And Trey always has wanted to say that from stage. And I think that was his version of it. You know, he he thought it was the coolest thing to say rock and roll ever. Well, it was, you know, know, Tom, it had that when you talk about the, the energy between the the band and the audience, and we really were all, all one inside that building, you know, inside both of those buildings. And a part of that, you know, you got the feeling that fish wanted to play so badly that they would have paid the audience to be there. You know, it it was like everything that it was all one. It didn't matter who was paying or who was playing. It was just this, we all were there. Let's say fish now starts paying us. You know what I mean? They could turn it around. That'd be cool. But, but let's not say that we played the band and we played (laughs) the music. Let's leave that to them. Okay. Um, But Tom, speaking of of that, this is where you, you kind of dally in both worlds. You know, I'm curious, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I ran into you on the, on the way uh, inside the building. And when during that run in that little bump in, uh, you mentioned that there was a new song called Birds of a Feather. 
Um, and, and you were right. <laughs> you, were, you weren't making it up. How did uh, I know? Yeah. Even if you actually, you well, you made it up, but you weren't making up the fact that it existed. So, so let's talk about the new song for a moment. The new song being Birds of a Feather. Um, so, you know, appropriately, I think it debuted during a show in which I do remember that there were a lot of people shut out outside. And I, I think, you know, 97 was when, 97 and 99 was when that was the outside shutout thing was a real phenomenon. And that there are a lot of people in the parking lots that some of whom weren't even planning on going into the show. And that's not as prevalent now as, as it used to be. But I, rem I remember in Nassau, I, I seem to remember that there are drum circles and there are fingers in the air. And there was like a balloon for every car in the parking lot. Um, so are, are those the birds of a feather flocking outside that you're talking about in the song? And, you know, do you ever discuss that type of context with, with Trey? <laughs> Trey? Trey said, uh, for every car, there's six people and one ticket or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I didn't discuss it with him. This is one of those like uh, uh, set and forget lyrics where I just gave him the lyrics. And I often uh, like him just to figure out his own context. And sometimes he'll tell me, uh, you know, I don't coach him. Sometimes uh, I, I might say, so so what's that one about for you? Like, I remember crowd control. We had like almost radically different uh, interpretations of it. But um, uh, the interpretations are, are, you know, slightly different. And But for birds, I mean, I think you can tell it's kind of like, what I saw wandering around shake shakedown or, or in a festival or something, just good vibes mainly with some angst thrown in, you know, the, it's not an experience if they don't bring someone along or strutting out of stride and all that, but mainly good crowd vibes. I love the angst thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to throw a little in or it's not a fish song. I, I'm a fan. outside. <laughs> Tom, did you did you know what it would sound like? Um, when they when they like performed it uh, for this? No, so no, I, I no, I knew. I think Trey had told me, uh, like, "Are you here?" kind of thing, like, I uh, or beforehand. I'm glad you're here. Um, or else I had witnessed them practicing it or something in the in the practice room. But I knew it was coming, but I didn't really know much about it. And so I was kind of surprised. I was I was surprised. He did a lot of work on this one without me. I was just the word boy. <laughs> well, um, I want to go. Can we just go back to the twist just for a second? Because I think this twist was was debuted the year before. And, and Tom, you've talked a lot about the creation of that song. I think you talked about going to sleep and waking up and Trey was was finishing the, the demo of, of that song or finishing the song. But he worked on it all night. Yep. It kind of came... I mean, it came out a year before, but it's sort of, I mean, it was kind of perfect for the time because 
there's this like, I mean, it's obviously got a nice groove to it, but it also is pretty open, open-ended, you know, but I feel like this, this version really is where it kind of takes this turn where, and then we'll hear, you know, in the future, you get the, like the Japan twist and and the one from Camden 03. And, and there's a lot that, that, you know, we still, it's kind of gone out of the jam rotation over the past few years, but Benji, I feel like Twist like really fits this era and the sound in terms of the improv. But maybe that's just because it's it's a pretty simple song, you know, chord structure wise. Well, so it gives them a lot of open room. Well, you know, RJ, it's kind of my final takeaway of of, of this night is that Twist. Uh, first of all, Tom, from now on, we're gonna call you Word Boy. Uh, <laughs> that's your new, new nickname. Um, but you know, 25 years later, yeah, RJ, you nailed it. Uh, absolutely. What I, what I remember most about this night musically, I think, well, the birds of a feather stands out and still both of these Island tour versions still stand as two of the greatest versions of the song. Uh, I, I think, um, and for years they were literally leading the jam charts with it. But, um, what I remember most about that twist, you know, it's interesting. What I remember about it is Chris Kuroda. Chris Kuroda had a peak moment of his own. And for maybe 10 seconds, the entire building looked like a spaceship that was taking off. And it happened to be during the same 10 seconds when the music sounded like it could be a spaceship taking off. And therefore it felt like we were on a spaceship that was taking off. And, you know, it's interesting because now you can go into just about any fish lot after just about any given fish show and you probably find a kid that says the same thing about 10, 10 seconds that particular night. Oh man, we were on a spaceship and we were taking off and corroded to the lights. But the thing about the 4-2 twist is that everyone who was in that building that night remembers it that way, or, or at least maybe amongst the, the company I keep. But but uh, <laughs> I remember walking out and, and everybody was talking about it. And and for years, you know, when when I would bring that that twist up with my with my friends, they'd say, and Kuroda. Because it was just like, it was a specific thing he did. He never had done it previously. And the only way to describe it is, is we were, we were taking off. Um, uh, do you remember I, that RJ? <laughs> I do. I remember the lights uh, yes. incredibly yeah. well, like awesome. fish, yeah. uh, like somehow, I don't know if between 97 and 98, he got an addition to the light rig or something, or or else maybe he was just like as fired up as the band, but for whatever reason, it was incredible. Yep. I do remember it being slightly different from from Fall '97 in some way. It was it was specifically during that twist, like he just did the one, and it worked with the music and, of course, with the audience. You know, so it was yeah. amazing. Man, was. I hope I hope we did justice to this first night because um, it's because we have three more nights to go, but also because man, what a great what a great way to open what, a open a run. Exactly, what a great night one for Island Tour. It's incredible, and will they top it? this legendary opening night. How will they top it? Um, come back tomorrow to find out. We'll still be in Long Island for night two at NASA. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, and Benji Eisen. Edited by Eric Limarenko, mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Production assistance from Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry and art by Mark Dowd. Peace out. Osiris. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. 
From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.